guys, welcome back to All Bark No Dice, the Fundamentals Tabletop Talk Show. This is Dan. I'm here with Tony Miller, one half of New Mill Industries. He's a designer with several games under his belt. He's a podcast host. He got a great beard, and he has joined me uh, on the show to talk a bit about the newest uh, game from New Mill industries which fittingly for a uh industrial title industrial title for a company uh rivet heads so thanks for coming on the show tony oh it's glad to be here so obviously we want to get to rivet heads that's the um, currently launched it's launched on kickstarter um officially runs through the end of the month currently at uh 4288 uh out of 6,000. So uh, if you're listening and you wanted to back it, go back it now. But if you're not sure, if you want to listen, if you're not sure about it, hopefully by the end of this episode, you will want to back it because it looks very cool. If I do say so myself. Thank you. So before we get there though, I want to talk a little bit about, I'm always curious with any creator, um, the journey that it takes to get to them creating, because it's always a little bit interesting. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering your history when it comes to board games. Um, where did it kind of start? So, um, much like a lot of people, um, my history with board games starts with, well, much like a lot of people in the U S I should specify my history kind of starts with the classic games that you would find in big box stores, um, primarily clue and risk as opposed to monopoly. Although I did play that, uh, growing up, um, I was really, really heavily into clue, um, Mm -hmm. but the, uh first i guess you could say hobby game that i really got into my dad was so sick of playing clue with me that he actually went out and started looking around for something that was like clue um and ended up finding a copy of sid saxon's sleuth and we ended up playing sleuth until the cards were literally unreadable um that old copy is no longer with the world i don't know where it ended up but um it was completely unreadable by the time we were done with it. But my dad was just glad because he could play a deduction game that wasn't Clue. Um, I uh, kind of got out of the hobby in junior high, high school time frame. I got more into heavy metal music and um, the internet, which uh, <laughs> I'm now 40. So the internet kind of became a thing while I was in junior high and high school in the uh, mid to late 90s. So, or at least it reached my small section of uh, central Illinois around that time. And so it was uh, much more interesting than a lot of the other stuff that was going on. So I kind of drifted away from board games um, until actually I joined the army uh, after high school. And um, I was in a military intelligence unit and as one might imagine uh that is made up almost entirely of geeks and nerds <laughs> and i happen to be one of them and that's kind of where i first really discovered role-playing games mm-hmm. uh, my like i was familiar with dungeons and dragons and stuff like that when i was younger um i actually had some old school um i can't remember the names of the books but they were uh, like a, a group of two books 
that you were supposed to play head to head with somebody else. And each one was like a choose your own adventure book where you were a character and you marked off your character sheet and you had like a head to head choose your own adventure experience. And I had a whole bunch of those that were D&D themed. And then uh, I had some random D&D modules that my father had given me as a kid because I really liked the monsters that were in them. But it wasn't until I got into the army that I really kind of got into role play. And that was kind of my thing for my early 20s mm-hmm. uh, until I stopped having time for role-playing games um, as everybody kind of drifted further and further into, you know, day-to-day, nine-to-five working life. Um, we ended up not having like eight hours on a Saturday to just sit around and play D&D together and stuff. So we started canceling um, our meetings and then we stopped canceling and instead started doing other things like playing games during that time frame. Um, played uh, Race for the Galaxy for the first time during that time. I really got very heavily into the uh, Game of Thrones collectible card game from hmm. Fantasy Flight. This was pre-LCG era. This was the wow. collectible card game version of it. Um, those were the Those were everywhere. Oh yeah, I was so into the Game of Thrones collectible card game. I, um, I was one of those George R. R. Martin fans that read the books back when I was high school. Again, mm-hmm. like late '90s. So you know, I'm still waiting on that series to finish at some point. And we've since had a collectible card game, a living card game, multiple board games, and a TV show that ran for several years. And those books still aren't done. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so. <laughs> Um, I was pretty big into the pretty big into the fandom, and I loved the card game, and uh, kind of traveled around the country, played in tournaments, ran some tournaments. I actually ran one of the uh, nationals qualifiers, um, the regionals tournaments that they had back when that was a thing. And then um, while that all of that was going on, like my wife. Uh, who's still into role-playing games, started having less time for role-playing games as well. Um, She was working on her graduate degree. And so we started looking for board games that we could play to kind of scratch the gaming itch, and we found Pandemic. Mm. And um, my wife and I love uh, playing games cooperatively. Uh, We always have, like... We used to, whenever we were in the army, like we would sit and we would play point and click adventure games cooperatively, uh, working together to try to suss out all the puzzles and everything like the old Lucasfilm stuff. Um, And then uh, we played uh, a lot of other games that like one of us would drive and the other one would watch and uh, try and figure out, help figure out, you know, where to go or what was going on or keeping track of things like that. Um, So playing a board game cooperatively was something that we hadn't done before. And so pandemic was a really big hit with us and we played quite a bit of it. And then at that point, like I was pretty much done with role-playing games. I just couldn't find the time. Uh, And so I kind of drifted off into board gaming in pretty exclusively. Um, And now uh, it's definitely, I would say, my thing. Um, I still like role-playing games, but I don't really, not really as into them anymore. Um, not even reading the source books. Um, much more into board games, card games. I guess the other thing I should say is that I come from a family of people who play trick-taking games. Mm. Um, so this was a big part of me growing up. Um, 
that comes both from both sides of my family, honestly. Like my my dad's uh, the first game I ever learned to play. The first card game I ever learned to play was Crazy Eights, and my grandma taught me that. Okay, it was my dad's mom. She taught me how to play Crazy Eights, and then we graduated to Spades, and then eventually Euchre. And then yeah, I was going to say you're from the, the you're family. from the Midwest. You've got to learn Euchre. It's for, yes, it's absolutely. <laughs> uh, played a lot of Euchre in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my mom's side of the family was all about Pinochle. Okay. And um, I've joked about it before, uh, but my mom is the oldest of eight kids, four boys and four girls. And uh, the game, the the get togethers, the family get togethers on her side of the family would involve after dinner was done, my grandmother and my grandfather sitting down at the table and then proceeding to face the teams of their kids in games of Pinochle. Um, and pretty much just demolishing them one after another. <laughs> and the joke is that they had eight kids, four boys and four girls, so that they had four teams that they could play against. And they would literally start with the two youngest and then go all the way up until they would face my mom and her oldest brother, uh, my uncle Frank. And that was their family get-togethers. And then all the people who weren't involved in the epic Pinochle clash would be in the other room doing things like playing Trivial Pursuit or Balderdash or some other party-type game from the 80s and 90s and stuff like that. But So I didn't ever really play Pinochle, but I grew up around it, and they all played uh, Spades as well. So Spades was my game until I discovered Euchre, and then I played Euchre all through high school, and then haven't really played it all that much since. I've had the same experience with Euchre. I mean, my played it a lot in high school because we don't have downtime or we just give it other games. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. My Well, my one of my friends who I played Euchre with in high school, when she got married, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, I couldn't um, take part in it because I was just paranoid about COVID. But she actually had, Understood. A, she had a Euchre tournament as part of her wedding reception. Oh, that's awesome. So I know she, she's some of my friends have really stuck with it, but I just haven't played it as much as I used to. Oh, it's been a long time since I played Euchre. Um, I've played a lot of trick taking games, though. I absolutely love trick taking games. So anything um, and ladder climbing games, I'll lump those in there as well. Um, whether it's uh, Teach You or um, Yin Yang, which is also known as Relationship Tightrope, I think. Um, the crew was my big hit of last year, for example. Oh yeah. Like I love trick taking games. <laughs> it's amazing how flexible they are um, from a game design standpoint. And they work with so many themes as well. So, mm-hmm. um, and they're fun. I, yeah, like I like them a lot and there's so many of them. It's so hard to, Oh yeah. <laughs> Small card games. There's so many of those. It's hard to be like, Oh yeah. I know all the oh, big ones. Cause I love small card games. Um, so my board game collection is right now probably the largest it's ever been because I just moved and uh, I like supporting my friends on Kickstarter. And now I'm pretty involved in the industry between uh, designing games and uh, running a podcast and being very vocal and loud on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of friends, so I have a lot of Kickstarters coming in, but uh, I have four, I, I have four, um, canvas drawers for my calyxes that hold all of my card games i also have four quivers that hold card games that i bring with me two quivers and two bolts Mm. uh, the smaller size quivers so i usually have at least a card game on me whether it's uh shot and totten or 
uh, no thanks or Fuji flush or a Bluxen or you, you kind of get the picture. I usually have some form of card game on my person. <laughs> Always good to be prepared, right? Oh, absolutely. Plus, it's not like it's taken up a lot of space. Like card games, it's not like I'm, you know, wheeling around a uh, dolly or a wagon filled with uh, Twilight Imperium or, um, you know, Kingdom Death Monster or anything. <laughs> I don't want to meet the person who always has uh, Twilight Imperium on them because that is a person to be feared. <laughs> I would think so. Like being ready to throw down at that at any time, that's somebody with some serious commitments. <laughs> Not only would they utterly destroy me, mm-hmm. but uh, it would be one of those things like this is somebody who really seriously loves this game. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I can handle that. So when it comes to uh, making games, you have, you, you know, you said you like small card games. You've actually got a pretty diverse You've designed a few games and uh, or co-designed in the case of um, Fire in the Library. There, you've got a pretty diverse little lineup already, thematically and you know mechanically. And I'm wondering when you when you're working on games, what is it you you're really thinking about? I mean, is there an intentionality to what kind of games you want to make, or is it just as the ideas come, you kind of follow them? Um, it's a bit more B as the ideas come, I kind of follow them. Um, one of the big things, and, and this is something that kind of united myself and uh, Daniel Newman, my partner in New Mill, is that we both kind of get infatuated with weird things, um, whether they're weird themes or weird mechanisms or just things that are a little bit off the beaten path. And um, so we kind of both have that going for us. And a lot of the stuff for me ends up being almost like lightning bolt eureka moments as I'm working on things. Uh, so each one of my games was kind of like inspired and or created in a different way. And so they're all, I would say they're pretty diverse um, as far as the, the, the sorts of mechanisms that they have. Um, but they're, uh, they're all inspired from different ways. So like my first game is a co-design my first published game I should say is a co-design called Fire in the Library Um, and my co-designer John Prather and I um, were both uh, just kind of getting started in game design Um, we were both kind of messing around with ideas and everything and we were in the same local game group uh, in northern Kentucky Cincinnati area and really um, we're just kind of like playing with ideas back and forth and everything. And so my first game design that I actually like put in front of other people um, at like a convention was a game called Elements. Um, And I brought that to an unpub and he was one of the people who helped me play test the crap out of it prior to that. And uh, so I came back with the game and everything and it was a, decently received didn't end up going anywhere like publishers really weren't interested in it it was my first like real game that played from start to finish without any major like roadblocks like there weren't weird corner case rules questions or anything like it was pretty solid but I don't know that it was gonna light the world on fire Um, publishers kind of felt the same way Mm -hmm. but there was one part of it that John really loved um 
And he kind of latched onto that and was like, hey, there's this cool thing that we do in uh, elements. You use the four traditional elements to complete like alchemical formulas. And then anytime you complete a formula, you could then trigger all of the formulas that you had um, in the sequence. And he really loved this mechanism. And so it started us down this path of working on a game together. And we ended up bringing that game to the next Unpub. And we'll talk more about it in a minute. But while we were at Unpub, I was just kind of daydreaming about uh, pressure luck games because I really like pressure luck games. And all the entire ride there, we actually drove to Baltimore from uh, Northern Kentucky. And the entire drive there, we were talking about pressure luck games and how much we love pressure luck games. I'm one of those people who feels that the real title of Can't Stop is Don't Stop. Um, I, I do not know how to not press my luck in games. Yeah. And so I was telling John about this idea I had, like, hey, what if there was a pressure luck game where it got riskier as time went on, but you were more rewarded as time went on? So, like... Everything that you're doing is worth more, but it's harder to succeed. Could that be an interesting thing? And he's like, sure, why not? And so we had like done a whole bunch of messing around with it and everything. So we get to the Unpub event and we're all excited to talk about this game that we co-designed together that we're showing off. And um, Ian Zhang, who's one of the other people on my podcast, one of the other hosts, yeah, um, was sharing a room with us and he was like, so... What do you guys got? And we went to show him the game that we were all excited about showing up all weekend. And he goes, no, not that. I want to see like the random stuff you're working on in your brain, the stuff that needs attention. Like, I don't want to see the stuff that you're going to be working on all weekend. Show me something new. Yeah. So I grabbed a piece of hotel stationery and some bits from other prototypes that we had on hand. And we played the first game of fire and library on the bed in the hotel. (laughs) And like there wasn't a theme there wasn't like really anything it was just mine and john's musings on the car ride there and stuff like that and it was not bad uh for all that being said they were like oh yeah there's definitely a game here there's something to this you guys should work on this and i'm like but i'm supposed to be showing this other game and ian's like well you can do this one too so um we finished unpub and everything and i get back home and I'm scrolling through at the time Facebook, um, which I'm not on anymore, but I was scrolling through Facebook and there was uh, one of the wonderful picture memes comes up that says, you know, you're really a book nerd if you're still angry about the Library of Alexandria. (laughs) And at that point, I realized that I was a gigantic book nerd. And so I started thinking, because we've been trying to think of what fire in the library would be like, what's something that you need to save that like you wouldn't feel crushed if you didn't save so like we'd initially discuss something like you know firefighters type theme but if you don't save a person from a burning building that's an absolute tragedy that's not something that anybody wants to like play in a quick fun pressure luck game and we couldn't think of any themes that weren't like ridiculously heavy but as soon as i stumbled across books it was like aha here's a thing Let's do this. So um, the game became a pressure luck game about rescuing books from a library that's burning down and having rescued the most knowledge before it's unsafe to continue entering the library. Um, 
And we ended up pitching that around and Carla at Weird Giraffe Games ended up picking it up and publishing it. And I'm super happy with how it ended up. Uh, I think it's gorgeous. We had um, Beth Sobel art and then Katie Cow did all of the graphic design for it. And it's, um, it's just a fantastic product. Um, and John and I are both really proud of the game inside. And so when that got to my house, I was really excited. And my son was younger, like much younger than he is now. He was like four or five, five, just five at the time. And like he knew it was daddy's game and he knew that it was a big deal that like there was a, an actual game with my name on it and that I was excited and everything, but he couldn't play it um, because the tool cards inside of Fire in the Library are all cards with special abilities that are all text. You have to be able to read to use them. And while I could explain what they were, like he wasn't quite at the stage where that was a thing he could do yet. Like he wasn't ready to play like exception-based card games. Um, so that whole part of the design was kind of lost on him. So here I was like with this, published design, my first published design, really excited, and my son can't play it. And it was at that point that I decided I was going to create something for him. And that design ended up becoming Kabuto Sumo. Um, and it was just based off of his favorite thing at the arcades, which are those coin pusher machines. Yeah. Yeah. If you walk into an arcade with my son and he has $20 to spend at the arcade, all 20 of those, 20 of those dollars are going to be turned into coins and put in a coin pusher machine. Um, <laughs> he absolutely lives for the waterfall of coins as they come off the end. It was something that he absolutely loved. And so, um, my wife was working at night at the time. She had a, an evening job. Uh, she works, worked as a massage therapist pre pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so I was working during the day while she was hanging out with little dude and then whenever uh, she would go off to work, little dude would hang out with me. So I um, mocked up a prototype, like real rough prototype, just like a sheet of paper with a rectangle on it. And I grabbed a whole bunch of wooden discs from my copy of Catacombs. And we just started playing around like it was a coin pusher game. And as I watched him play, and as we did various things with it, we ended up kind of morphing it into a different thing. Um, and all sorts of like design decisions that I made were completely from observing how my son engaged with the pieces just yeah. in general. So like fire in the library was almost exclusively like, I have this cool pressure luck mechanism. Let's find a theme for it. Uh, Kabuto Sumo was, I have this thing that my son likes to do. How can we theme this? And I don't want to say that it was really theme based design because Kabuto Sumo was more of a, like, what is a fun experience for him to be having with these pieces? So, like, we were initially playing for score, and he had much more fun with, like, a sudden death type mechanism where one player wins and the other loses, and it happens, like, in an instant. Like, you can set it up, obviously, and you know where you're at, but it's, like, in Kabuto Sumo, the first person to be knocked out of the ring is the loser, basically. Um, so... It, it just kind of ended up uh, another one of those lightning bolt moments where I had this thing that my son and I had been playing around with that didn't have a name or didn't have an idea. And then I was watching a wrestling show from Japan 
which wrestling is my other big hobby that I'm still really into. And um, they had this ad package about like Japan in the springtime and the cherry blossoms and all of this other stuff going on. And there was this scene of these two beetles, uh, Japanese rhinoceros beetles wrestling on a log. Hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's my game. Like that's, that's what it could be. Like we can make it, you know, sumo beetles. How cool is that? So I immediately started talking to my son about it and he was into it. He likes bugs. Um, he was, you know, five at the time. So bugs were very cool. Oh yeah. And so we, um, we just started workshopping it from there. So like, it's like, okay, so it's a sumo ring. So now what rules from sumo wrestling can I use inside of this game that makes sense? And how can I, you know, adapt this to what he likes to do about it? And all of my design decisions were completely driven by him as my focus group. Um, <laughs> because the entire purpose was a game that had as little reading as possible, hopefully no reading other than maybe the rule book. And then, um, that my son liked. And, um, so, so it really met those criteria. And then I brought it to a convention and shopped it around and everything. Well, while all of the Kabuto Sumo stuff was going on, I was working on other designs because after my encounter at Unpub with Ian, who told me, hey, you know, I know you're showing this game off, but maybe you should be working on other stuff too. Uh, I branched out into working on multiple designs at once, like pretty much any designer. Um, and so uh, going all the way back to the beginning, I said we would come back to this mechanism from elements. And so that ended up becoming the assembly line mechanism that I used in multiple different designs over time and has now finally landed itself in rivet heads. Um, so the whole idea behind the assembly line is that you have a row of cards, in this case three, um, and you're going to trigger them all in order from left to right, like reading. Um, and you're gonna basically activate whatever each of those cards tells you to do. And then the oldest card, will fall off of your assembly line and the two cards in front of it will slide down, opening up a hole for the next card that you're going to add to it. And so this mechanism we tried to put in multiple different games, big games, small games. Uh, we changed what the cards did multiple times, used dice. We had all of these different ideas and John and I, my co-designer from Fire in the Library, ended up designing a game uh, that we called Back to Earth which was the game that we were showing at that Unpub. And so uh, we showed it to a lot of different publishers, workshopped it, play tested it, did a lot of different things with it and ended up signing it at one point. But before the publisher published it, they ended up releasing the rights back to us, basically saying like, hey, we've signed way too many games and this one we're not gonna be able to get to for some time. So here you go, here's the rights back. And so John and I were like, so what do we want to do with this? And we were both kind of like crushed because here was this, you know, second game that both of us had worked really hard on that we really wanted to see published and didn't know what to do with it. And finally, I was just like, so John, do you care? Because I had now moved. I, I'm now living in Oregon. So I had moved away from Cincinnati. Yeah. And so it was harder for us to co-design online at the time. And I said, do you mind if I just like take this mechanism and like mess around with it? And he's like, well, it was your mechanism to begin with. Go ahead. I want to see what you do. And so I ended up kind of like splitting the design. So Back to Earth is still out there. It's sitting on a shelf. We still have that prototype. 
Um, we have a different version of it now that uh, uses more of a dice mechanism like Grand Austria Hotel. Um, but then the other game that it became is Rivet Heads. And Rivet Heads was basically a game that was designed to be the purest distillation of this mechanism that I could think of. Um, I wanted something that was going to be um, streamlined, that was going to be really satisfying to play. Like the core loop of the mechanism of uh, draft a card, play it to your assembly line, activate all of your cards, shift your assembly line down, draft a new card, activate your assembly line, shift it down, makes the turns move really quickly. And it's just, to me personally, a very satisfying mechanism. Like I get in my flow state really quickly while playing uh, game, uh, while playing Rivet Heads specifically, but any game that uses that mechanism um, really is like candy for me. I love it. Um, so Rivet Heads, we wanted to try and get rid of all of the extraneous stuff that was around it. Like designing Kabuto Sumo taught me that sometimes simpler is better, but simple is not easy. And it's actually harder to design simple because there's always the temptation to add more stuff to fix a problem or to make a game bigger to accommodate new ideas. Um, so I decided I was going to try and simplify it as much as possible. So I ended up with a pretty decent game that I brought to several conventions locally in this area, Portland, Seattle, West Coast, Pacific Northwest area. Yeah. And played it with a lot of different people. And the playtest went pretty good. There were lots of great suggestions from the designers up here. Um, but one of the biggest problems it had was scoring. It was an absolute bear to score how I had it initially built. And so when Daniel and I decided to start New Mill, um, I brought it to Daniel and was like, hey, I think this game would fit really well in our line, but I'm going to need you to develop it. And so Daniel took on developing it and helped me cut away a lot of the extra stuff that wasn't um, that, that got in the way of the fun, like the the extra levels of scoring and the the algebra that was necessary to store it in my initial version, and created something that's like a quick, smooth, slick card game, and um, it kind of fit right in to our lineup. Um, the first game that we did was Daniel's game, the Science and Science Society, yeah, which was a small asymmetric two-player game um, that was something that Daniel had worked on and pitched around. And a lot of publishers were like, "Wow, this is really good," but you know, it's two-player. Which little did they know, we would end up in a pandemic where that's the primary type of game that most people would get to play. Um, it's two player. We don't really want to do that. It's asymmetric. We don't want a game that people have to learn independently, you know, but it's a really good game. And so with the lack of conventions and uh, Daniel and I both like just kind of sitting, waiting for something to change, we both decided, you know what, maybe we should take some of these games we have that are good, um, like Science and Science Society, like Rivet Heads that publishers just haven't expressed a lot of interest in, and maybe we should do it. And we decided really early on that we didn't want to become like a big publisher. Our goal is not to be a renegade 
um, or a stronghold or any of the other um, larger publishers that exist out there. We wanted to go more kind of punk rock with things. Yeah, I was wondering. And so, yeah, so we call ourselves a punk rock publisher. And basically the idea is that we're much more like the garage band that you go to see and you know they have the little merch table in the back with cds that they burned themselves that yeah. maybe have the title written on it in marker or whatever like we're never going to be played on a top 40 station we may be a hit on a college radio station somewhere but we're not going to be like on store shelves everywhere and um that was never our goal like we didn't want this to be that kind of an endeavor what we really both of us cared about was taking our designs and getting them in the hands of people who would play them. Um, and so new mill operates basically using print on demand vendors to manufacture all of the components of our games, which gives us a really quick turnaround time on Kickstarters. Um, to give you an idea of that, we did uh, the Kickstarter for science and science society in October and uh, we had games in everybody's hands before the end of February um, because we were able to source everything locally um, from various print-on-demand companies, uh, Game Crafter, Drive-Through Cards, Print and Play Productions, a lot of the same people that we were using to make our own prototypes. And uh, then all of that stuff was shipped to me at my apartment at the time. And I hand packed all of the boxes, um, counted all the cards, counted all the bits, hand packed them all, hand shipped them all. And, um, you know, that was our first game. And so now Rivet Heads is kind of our sophomore effort. We're coming back um, with the same kind of aesthetic, the same kind of plan and the same kind of mindset. Um, and hoping to get that in people's hands so that they can, you know, play this cool game that I absolutely love that I wanted to share with the world. Yeah, it's a really unique model because, I mean, I, um, sort of the big, the big kicks, the big king of Kickstarters, um, is, I mean, there's a, there's a couple in, in, in the industry, but I think the real person who's really like doing the most with it is, is come on games. Mm -hmm. And, um, their rather intense business model when it comes to how they do stretch goals and how they do mm -hmm. Kickstarter exclusives. Uh, I never backed one before, um, but they just released, they just put their uh, X-Men Marvel United up and mm -hmm. I'm a massive X-Men fan. So I was like, well, I guess I'm going to do this. I got to do this now. And, <laughs> um, and I'm sitting here and I'm getting emails. And I'm just like, Unlocked, 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 unlocked. And mm -hmm. I most of the things I back are smaller stuff. And so I'm just yep. like boggling at it. But a lot of places do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the industry to be healthy kind of needs everything. Like if we look at the video game industry, which isn't quite analogous to board games, but yeah. it's one of the things that a lot of people like to use for comparison. Um, you know, they have their AAA titles, their Call of Duties, um, their FIFAs, their, you know, various gigantic titles that they release on every uh platform or that are you know if it's an exclusive people like lose their minds like oh my gosh you mean i have to get an xbox to play halo um 
all of those like major franchises that become these tentpole franchises for AAA industries where hundreds of people work on it and um, you know, over the course of multiple years. And then you have the indie game devs who, you know, release little like deck builder games on Steam yeah. uh, and have a team of like two people plus artists, um, you know. And I think to have a really healthy ecosystem in gaming, we kind of need all of it. Like music's the same way, whether you are a top 40 um, musician, you know, the Taylor Swift's of the world, um, releasing albums and making uh, millions of dollars off each one, or you're, you know, the SoundCloud rapper whose uh, buddies buy your CDs uh, when they hear your stuff off Twitter. Um, there's, there's, there's room for everybody inside of that marketplace. And I think it's one of the things that as an industry, we're going to have to do to continue growth because Everybody trying to be the next renegade is not going to foster growth. Um, you know, Asmodee running through and gobbling up larger board game companies once they get to a certain size. Um, you know, those titles that, you know, or those, com those companies that will only release a title if it will sell hundreds of thousands of copies and they can put it on, you know, target shelves and, uh, big box store shelves just in general like there's definitely a place for those companies i want them to exist a lot of my friends work for those companies and i'm super excited to see what all they create and what they can do with their kind of a budget and at the same time like i think there's plenty of room for smaller uh like one in two person shops to create and play inside the same space without it being like a competition yeah. um one of the things I really love about this industry is how much everybody helps each other um, and how, uh, how everybody kind of works together in a, you know, rising tide lifts all boats kind of mentality. Um, and I think it really benefits everybody to kind of keep doing that. And so a lot of, like I said, a lot of the Kickstarters that I back are other designers or other companies and they're people that I know, people yep. that I interact with regularly or people who I play test their games, they play test mine or, um, you know, people who I, I've met through industry events and various things like that. Like I'm, I'm supporting that person specifically. And that's kind of where uh, new mill kind of fits into the industry is that like, I'm still planning on designing games that I pitched to publishers. I mean, Kabuto Sumo was signed by board game tables and had a Kickstarter that was, uh, I would say very successful. Um, it wasn't a cool mini or not, you know, million dollar Kickstarter, but um, it was uh, a six figures Kickstarter, which is yeah. pretty darn good. Um, and so like when a game like Kabuto Sumo where it would be impossible for me to produce it, like I couldn't, I can't laser cut all those pieces in my living room. You know, that's not going to happen, but something like rivet heads, that's a card game with a few tokens um, is something that I can create um, and can put out through a print on demand level. And because it's a little bit more niche, um, you know, why fight to put it on just why fight to put it into distribution yeah. when I could just, put it directly in the hands of people who might like it. Um, and so that's kind of where New Mill came from. Like a lot of it was our own, um, 
lack of surety on what to do with ourselves during the pandemic, because, yeah. you know, there's no in-person events, mm-hmm. you know, we're not going to weekly play test sessions that are a local gaming store. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have moved stuff online and that works to varying degrees for different people, but um, it, it was just different. Like we couldn't go to cons to pitch games. Yeah. You know, we weren't talking to people. And so to kind of put our creative energy towards something new mill kind of became that. And our goal is to kind of keep doing this. Uh, but now we want to do it with other people. So like our first game was one of Daniel's. Our second game is now one of mine. Um, our third and fourth game, which we've already kind of lined up are going to be other designers who are in similar positions. People who have like a little, a design that's kind of quirky that wouldn't necessarily be picked up by a, massive publisher but there's a good game that uh people who play it or people who like that kind of game are going to absolutely love yeah um and so that's just kind of what we want to do with it like opening it up to other designers like hey we're going to go ahead and help you get this game in people's hands um and that's just kind of our mindset at this point is let's take a cool idea that's a little bit off the beaten path and make it and get it into people's hands and then we'll see what happens with it you know um maybe that'll end maybe one of the games will end up in the hands of a bigger publisher who then decides they do want to go forward with it now that they've got like a physical example of what the game could be in their hands rather than a conceptual prototype you know yeah i don't know um there's all sorts of possibilities that are open and we're completely open to those possibilities like neither daniel nor i are swearing off working with other publishers or now saying all of our games are going to be new mill games going forward um i'm actually more excited about working with other people now um rather than just publishing our own stuff yeah Uh, because every designer i know has games that are sitting on a shelf that they truly believe in that a big publisher can't take the risk on for whatever reason yeah whereas for us like we're absorbing really minimal risk Mm -hmm. um to put it out there because we're looking at you know making 500 or fewer copies of the game um you know hand assembling it getting it in people's hands and then going from there we don't right now intend on reprinting anything um so like the kickstarter is going to be like a one and done operation for each game and we'll just kind of keep going forward from there so yeah yeah. i mean that's one thing that you know, we, when, when I, I did a pre when I previewed um, science and science society and, and looking through rivet heads, it's definitely, it's very functional. It's kind of, um, it, it's like board games for people, people who like board games. I know that sounds silly, but mm-hmm. I can see clearly like the design elements are very forward. Mm-hmm. Um and sort of the cleverness and the thing, and I'm not even, you know, I'm not the world's biggest, you know, game designer, um, mostly because I haven't played nearly enough. And sometimes it's confusing trying to keep track of all the different mechanics, but, hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, just you know, looking at it and it's, it's very interesting. And that's like a very niche of a very cool thing. You know, it's kind of like uh, with your, with your rest, with the wrestling um, Mm-hmm there's a lot of uh wrestlers who do you know they'll do a very they would do a very technical or very um complicated style of wrestling 
mm-hmm. that does very well with certain segments of people um, mm-hmm. and gets very big reviews, but would not and does <laughs> historically does not tend to get over in, you know, in like WWE mm-hmm. you know, at the very, very top of things. And um, I think it's, int- it's really cool that board games is having that impulse, you know, and, and obviously, as you say, and, you know, you guys aren't the only ones doing it. It's, and that's what's mm-hmm. great about the industry. There's so many people doing it, but it's really fun seeing uh, people with that impulse getting support and doing well uh, right now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I love seeing all of my friends succeed. Um, I'm really good friends with the uh, Flat Out crew out of Seattle. I love Flat Out. Um, I've talked to them a couple oh, times. They're great. Absolutely. The the whole crew, all three of them are fantastic. And all of the, the larger group that they have working with their board gaming co-op um, that they've kind of created uh, that's done um, Calico and... Um, uh what's the the next one the next one's verdant and cascadia is the other one yeah like that larger group of people those are some of the nicest people and most uh amazing designers and developers and artists and it's some of the most awesome people i've ever met like in life period um but to see them like continuing to create cool things like that is a really inspiring to me and i really enjoy that and um you know their whole like everybody's gonna work together and we're gonna make this cool thing is part of what inspired us um also uh grant rodiak with hyperbole games uh Mm -hmm. who did um solstice which became imperious and uh spqr which became fort with leader games Uh, that was my favorite game of last year yeah, Grant is another one of our inspirations, like somebody who did weird little games that they put out themselves, and then those games go on to, you know, take on a life of their own. Um, and Button Shy, um, Jason Tagmeyer has been doing punk rock board game publishing since before it was cool, you know, little 18 card game in a wallet uh, that comes out um, and has a like punches way above its weight class, as oh, you totally. might say. You know, Sprawlopolis, Tussie Mussy, Circle the Wagons, uh, Avignon. So <laughs> so yeah, like there's those things. so many of his titles are like, wow, these are incredible games and they're 18 cards and you, you know, outsource all of the, like you produce all of the stuff with like smaller printers and then you hand assemble all of it before you mail it out yourself. Like the, they were all, all of those guys uh, and gals and people involved in all of those um operations were kind of our inspiration like you know this may or may not these things may or may not go on to have a life of their own after this endeavor but this is something that we can do that uh feeds our creative impulses and uh puts our stuff out into the world and like you said we are both daniel and i are a little bit more mechanism forward like the games really showcase their mechanisms science and science society is very much about the asymmetry yeah um and uh, one of the things that I've really enjoyed is watching people play it is almost always the first time somebody plays, they'll go, oh, well, the science player has it so much easier than the seance player. 
science player wins every game and then they'll play a little bit more and now they've learned how to counter science because of their initial thoughts that science is more powerful and it's like nope nope seance is way more powerful once you know the trick science just can't win it's not possible and then now they'll you know the pendulum just keeps swinging back and forth um and mm -hmm. it's one of the things i absolutely loved about that game um with rivet heads the thing that really draws me in personally other than just the whole core loop of the game being a satisfying flow for me is that it's not really like it's sort of an action programming game but not really it's more of a engine building resource conversion game it's just that it's very clear what your engine is because you're literally feeding it fuel every turn you're giving it some more fuel to burn and if you don't plan for that like if, if your plans aren't producing enough resources to output the resources you want then um it can uh you know you can start locking up but as you start learning how the game operates like which uh, the game is divided into three cycles and as you play the progression of resources kind of moves with you through the game so you'll start spending credits on lower level augmentations for your squad and then in the middle section of the game you're still using a few credits here and there but now you're either upgrading augmentations to better augmentations or you're requiring more of the lower level augmentations and then in the third phase of the game you're now like cycling all the way up to the highest level augmentations or converting inside of the different uh levels of augmentation to kind of create what you're looking for and um you start every game like having a secret goal of what your squad needs to have at the end that kind of gives you direction inside of that. And one of the things that all the larger versions of the game had inside of them uh, was you had to pay for your cards. There was a separate currency up and above what the cards provided. And all of that's been stripped out for rivet heads. And instead we put in a King Domino style draft. Mm. So now, as the cards come out, the more powerful cards will force you to go later in the turn on the following round. And so now you're trying to balance with each card you select, how late can I afford to go in turn order to gain efficiency now? And so the whole game is basically how, um, how efficient can I build my engine? towards this specific purpose that I have when I start. And so it is a very mechanism forward game. Um, but I think a lot of the people who are really into the nuts and bolts and the gears of game design will actually enjoy that uh, because they're the kinds of people who will look at it and like make it sing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so at least that's the hope anyway. I really enjoy it. And yeah. uh, Daniel really likes it. So we're hoping that other people agree with us on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you guys have already done pretty damn well uh, as it is. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, really hoping that, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it will. But, you know, it's Kickstarter. You never know exactly. But, you know, hope it gets yeah. over that. Yeah, we're that final um, bit yeah we're we're both very confident in the game we'll see if uh if it makes it to funding like we're two-thirds funded still got two weeks left there's a really good chance that everything's gonna you know make its way through the biggest of course the biggest funding days in a kickstarter's life are the first day and the final day and um so i think that's a big consequence of of 
you know, and my, I do it too. My brain mm-hmm. does it too. You know, when I'm, cause I'm as a journalist, I'm following, you know, stuff and especially from companies yep. like, like leader um, and, and stuff and, and, and restoration and yep. come on, obviously they, they hit a million dollars in like a day or something. Yep. And the board gaming public has seen so many of those happen that now mm-hmm. there's this idea that, Oh, you only made your, your goal or you only mm-hmm. made you know 150 percent of your goal oh mm-hmm. that's that you somehow failed um when that's not the case at all <laughs> no we just want to keep making games um <laughs> ideally we fund because the games won't exist without funding like they exist we'll probably end up like if we didn't make funding we would probably end up putting it on some sort of a print and play site where you could buy it for a smaller fee and you'd have to get your own components and stuff like that. And we'd both be really sad. Um, but, um, you know, Kickstarter is kind of where you try out your ideas to see what works and what doesn't. We're still learning as a company. This is only our second game. Um, so we're both really confident that if it gets into people's hands, they're going to absolutely love it. And, um, you know, if, if it doesn't end up out there not every uh, record from every band is a mega hit with yeah. people so we'll see what happens um i'm still like i said it's still too early to call at this point it's a 17 day kickstarter and we've got 14 days left and we're two-thirds uh, just over two-thirds of the way there so i'm pretty confident we're gonna make it and for a company that's not looking to sell more than 500 copies of it anyway um that's fine you know if we end up printing 200 copies and putting them in people's hands. That's plenty for me. I'll be really excited about that. And, um, you know, we can move forward from there. Awesome. Well, um, I think that is just about time. Um, so thank you again for, for coming on and talking about your, your, your process and, and, and rivet heads. So, you know, getting so in depth into your design philosophy. Well, thank you for uh, letting me ramble. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's really enjoyable to get to talk about this stuff because I, I absolutely love game design. I love the gaming industry in general and the people in it. And so um, it's cool to be able to be a part of it and to share at least a little bit of myself inside of it. So if we want to, uh, you know, see it, see any more of your of your rambling where can we where can we find you on online oh well you can always find me rambling on twitter at bearded rogue um that's that's pretty much a guarantee um if you want to listen to me ask people questions and get them to ramble uh you can (laughs) tune into my podcast which is breaking into board games which is at breaking into bg on twitter i'm one of the three hosts, but our goal is to talk as little as possible on our own podcast. Um, and then if you want to know anything about what we're up to with uh, New Mill Industries and the, the cool stuff that we're doing there, you can find me at new underscore mill on Twitter. All right. And I will, of course, will be linking a link to Rivet Heads down below. So definitely click it, check it out. Thanks again for listening to All Bark No Dice, the Fundamentals Tabletop Talk Show. As always, we are fueled by Found Familiar Coffee Company. Go to Found Familiar, use the code FANDOM to get 15% off your entire order. And if you want, 
give us a little shout out on iTunes or Podchase or wherever you're listening. Give the five star review. Really helps a lot. Thank you so much and happy rolling. Yeah.